0: The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. Please open up your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 34. As we continue our study through 1 Corinthians, uh, we're getting towards the end. We'll be finished with this, Lord willing, by Advent. But we get to this section at the end and Paul loads it with significance. It is perhaps the deepest reflection in the Bible on the resurrection and the meaning of the resurrection and the practical aspects of the resurrection and what the resurrection means for us. You know, it's it's great because we don't just save Easter. That's not the only time we talk about the resurrection. We If you think about it, every single Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. That is why we're here. And if Jesus isn't raised, then there's no reason for any of us to be here. And that's Paul's point, as we'll see. This morning, we're going to look at, in fact, Christ has been raised. And I'm going to read verses um, 12 through 19. And I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before Your Word, Your powerful Word, Your Word that, Lord, the same Word that You spoke creation into being with, the same Word that You cause dead hearts and souls to to be made alive through Jesus. It is Your Word that accomplishes the most powerful things that happen in this universe. And it is Your Word that even upholds the universe together as we speak. And so, Lord, we are asking for you, through your word, to do amazing things in our midst this morning, Lord, to change hearts and cause blind eyes to see, Lord, to bring consolation and encouragement and comfort to those who are dejected and downtrodden, Lord, to remind us of our hope in Jesus and to enliven us and embolden us to live with joy and hope and love in a present evil age. Lord, we ask you to do all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. It was probably about 10 years ago, I woke up one Monday morning, and it was a week where I had a big trip planned. And so I was actually going to be leading a missions team to cordova peru and i woke up that monday morning and i started getting things ready we were going deep into the andes mountains of cordova it's called a little village up there called cordova and it was a village that our church ashland avenue in lexington had targeted as we were going to keep going to this village until there was a church there because when the first time we went there were no christians anywhere And we continued that work for some time. And I just want to confess to you that that my importance to this trip was severely limited. Um, I I don't speak Spanish. I only speak English and sometimes not too good. And so there I was. I'm not a a gristled missionary veteran or anything like that. My, My importance was singular. I had one thing that no one else on this mission team had. I had been there before. And I had been several times. And that's an important thing because I told you it was remote. And we're talking about flying into a foreign country, renting a car, meeting translators, driving up into the mountains where there's crosses all over the side of the ridges where people have fallen over and died. And so I was an important component to this trip for that reason and that reason alone. Well, I woke up that Monday morning, and I began preparing, and I found my passport, and I opened my passport, and I took a peek at my passport, and I realized on Monday, three days before I was set to leave, that my passport was expired. And so, you, you know, they tell you eight to 11 weeks on that. And I started doing a little bit of Google research, and I found a company that for a fee claimed that they could get me back my passport renewed in three days. Three days. If you're skeptical, I was too. But all my research said this was a legitimate company. And the key was is that they have agents who live by the, the regional passport offices, and they asked me to overnight my passport on Monday... To Houston, Texas, where one of their agents would go into the passport office and, with the papers that I've signed, go into there and get it renewed on the spot and then walk out of there and overnight it back to me by Wednesday. The agent would serve as a proxy. You've ever heard that word before? A proxy is someone that you authorized to go in and represent your cause on your behalf to accomplish what you've asked them to do. They're not you, but they go representing you. They go for you. And sure enough, on Wednesday afternoon, the truck pulled up to my house and the man got out and he handed me a legitimate, <laughs> not fake, at least... I don't, I mean, it's been working ever since. (laughs) Renewed passport. This concept of proxy is helpful for understanding perhaps the most central claim of Christianity. This is really important. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, you need to, to understand what I'm about to describe to you. Because this is something That the Bible is seeking to explain to us and help us understand and help us live in light of on, on virtually every page. And that is this, that the Bible tells us that if we have put our faith in Jesus, that our identities as individuals now are completely wrapped up in Him, We are joined to Jesus, so much so that Jesus now represents us. We could say that he serves sort of as our proxy on behalf of us before God, so that when God looks at Jesus, God sees all of us in Jesus, so that what Jesus has done is now credited to us. So much so that everything that is true about Jesus is also true about those who are in Jesus. One New Testament theologian puts it this way. Christians are really and actually in the same location as is the ascended Christ in heaven because He is there and they are in union with Him. Every single benefit that we have as Christians depends upon our union with the risen and ascended Jesus by faith. Everything. We have nothing without Jesus, and everything we have is in Jesus. We sing a song here sometimes. We say, praise the Lord, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. And that is what we're learning. This passage that was read earlier in the service, Colossians 3.3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. The old you is no more. Your identity apart from Jesus has been dead. It's, It's been killed. It's over. It's through. It's finished. And now your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's our our identity. And so what's true about Christ is true about us because we are located in Him. If you think about it, what I'm describing is actually much stronger than proxy. Proxy is actually too weak of an idea to capture it. We are actually united to Him. That is stronger than representation. Our identity is completely immersed in Him. Put it this way, you no longer should ever think about yourself apart from yourself in Christ. That's Christianity. And all of this matters If we are going to understand what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he starts talking about the resurrection. And so we're going to look at this passage in two parts. The first thing we're going to look at in verses 12 through 19 and at the end, verses 29 through 34, is why the resurrection matters practically. Why the resurrection matters practically. As Pastor Josh reminded us last week, there are people in this church who are denying that the resurrection is real. That's what's going on in Corinth. And it makes sense. It makes sense because the problem that Paul keeps dealing with in Corinth is that the people there are obsessed with this life. They are obsessed with power in this life. They are obsessed with pleasure in this life. They are obsessed with the immediate. They are obsessed with the right now. And it seems as if there are some of these Christians, and it's not that they're denying resurrection completely, it's that they're denying the importance of a physical resurrection. They're probably saying something like, something you hear today, like, yeah, resurrection... You know, it's a nice spiritual idea. It's a nice spiritual message. We kind of receive a resurrection. But they're denying the reality that Jesus Christ in his flesh actually came back to life and started breathing again. And they're denying the reality that we're going to do that too because of what Jesus did. They put this de-emphasis throughout this letter. We see that they don't really care much about what we do in the body. The physical body is unimportant to them. What's important to them is the spiritual. Well, church, that's a lot like our culture. I don't know if that sounded familiar to you, but it should. Right? We 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 really love online life, digital media, social media. You know, I think some of us have a hard time understanding what it means for our identity to be in Jesus because all we think about our identity is what's on Instagram or Facebook. This disembodied existence where who I really am is out there, disconnected from me and my real person. And that is really dangerous. If you're going to understand the gospel, you you can't leave your body behind if you are going to follow Jesus because Jesus intends to resurrect your body. Jesus says your body is important. So we have all kinds of ways that we de-emphasize this message. We, we also have those who claim that, you know, resurrection's just not that scientific. Which has really always been a funny one to me. Of course, resurrection's not scientific. Like that's the point. Like it wouldn't even be talked about if it happened every day. That's the reality, is that God alone can do it. And it's so funny to me that people who pride themselves on, you know, we're, we're facts-based, and, and, and we're empiricists, and we, we see things, and we judge things by what we see, claim that something like the resurrection can't be true because they can't see it, as if you would be able to see it. You can't see it. It's something that God promises It's more sure than what you can see. You missee see things all the time. Sometimes you wake up and you have a dream and you don't know if that was reality. Sometimes we hallucinate. Sometimes we think we see things that aren't really there. Sometimes we accuse people in the church of doing things that they didn't really do. We misjudge things all the time. But the Bible says God raised Jesus and God, by the authority of His Word, promises that He will raise us too if we are in Jesus. Church, that's about as sure as it gets. And then some of us dismiss all of this, you know. We're, 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 the, we're the real mature ones, you know. We, we don't need all this talk about resurrection. I, I'm going to face death like a man. All this pie in the sky, far-fetched stuff, this opiate of the masses. I don't need that talk. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it, and then I'm going to die and be buried in the dirt. That's an illusion too. Because you're not going to just die and be buried in the dirt. You're going to be resurrected too. But you're going to be resurrected for judgment. That's what the Bible teaches. So Paul makes this argument. And the argument, listen, if you are a Christian, this is what Paul's saying to you. If you are a Christian, your faith in the resurrection is not optional. There are all kinds of things in the Christian life, beliefs that are optional. You you may have different views on government and politics. You may have different views on certain freedoms that Christians are allowed to do. But you can't waver in your belief in a resurrected Jesus if you are a believer in Him. This is where our hope rests. And so Paul makes this argument, and, I, and I'm going to just kind of sum it up for you before we jump in. It's, it, it's shaped like a sandwich, okay? Imagine a sandwich. You've got a bun on top. You got a bun underneath. And in the middle, it's actually like a triple mac. It's like this huge meaty portion in the middle. And that's Paul's argument. The top half is Paul showing us the practical implications, the consequences of denying the resurrection. The bottom half, he gives us more practical implications of denying the resurrection, but in the middle is this heavy theological argument for why the resurrection must be true. So we're going to look at the practical, the buns of the sandwich first, and then we're going to jump into the meat. Paul counters These denies, these denials with a series of if-then statements. Look with me in verse 12. He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? There's an if, there's a then. But if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Six times, Paul says, if. If you believe that, then here are the consequences. And I'm going to summarize the consequences into four. The first consequence of denying the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then Christ isn't raised. That's what he says first. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So imagine this with me. It makes sense. If the universal principle of resurrection is denied, then you must also deny a particular instance of it. If you're saying there's no resurrection from the dead, then you are by necessity saying that Jesus is still dead. Because Jesus couldn't raise. It's a logical argument. If dead men don't rise, Christ ain't raised. That's Paul's point. And if Christ ain't raised, here's what Paul's about to argue. If he ain't raised, church, we've got a lot of problems. A lot of problems, starting with the fact that y'all are wasting a lot of time. Here's the second thing, drawing from that, verses 15 and 16. If there's no resurrection, then we're liars. I'm going to run through this one quickly. Look at verses 15 and 16. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Paul says, we have been preaching the resurrection to you. If there is no resurrection and Christ is not raised, then everything we've told you is a lie and everything you've been telling one another is a lie as well. We're lying. It's not a good consequence. I don't know about you, but even in a culture that doesn't really value the truth anymore, I still don't want to be a liar. Well, here's the third thing. Here's where Paul really starts getting to the heart of it. If there's no resurrection, then our faith and our lifestyle are all nonsense, futile, meaningless. If there's no resurrection, then everything we're doing is ridiculous. It doesn't matter. It's futile. It's meaningless. He uses all these words to make this point. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. It is meaningless. That's what that word means. And in verse 17, he says the same thing. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What does he mean by that? Your sins have not been forgiven because Jesus died to pay for the penalty for our sins, and he rose again to to signify God's acceptance, the justification of God with the work that Jesus had done. His resurrection is his vindication. It is the sign to us that God has accepted his offering, his atonement on our behalf. Paul says if, if... if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you're just putting your hope in a pipe dream. You're, you're just hoping that, you know, maybe you'll be the first person that doesn't die. That's what this amounts to. And he digs into this argument. So we're going to jump to the, the bottom bun now. Verses 29 to the end of this chapter. And, and look with me there. Verses 29 first first, verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? This is interesting. We're like, man, that doesn't really fit. And here's the reality of this verse is that, you know, you you never want to build a whole theology off one verse that you could be misinterpreting in the Bible, right? And this verse doesn't make sense with anything else Paul says or anywhere else in the New Testament speaks because what does the Bible teach us? That you can't represent the dead. That it is appointed unto man to to live and then die and face the judgment. So what does it mean? Well, this is what it means. That there are people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ After their loved ones have died in hopes of being reunited with their loved ones. That's what this verse means. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? There are people who are being baptized because... They're being led to Jesus after someone they love died because they want to be reunited. So they're being baptized on behalf of the dead in the sense that they are being baptized hoping that one day in the future, in the future resurrection, they are going to see them again. Paul says, why would you practice this if resurrection isn't true? What you're practicing, he says, is foolish. Foolish. But look at what he says after that in verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Why are we putting ourselves in danger? Why are we suffering? Why are we going through trials? Verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. This is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Right? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross, die daily. We have to put ourselves to death because we recognize that we ourselves get in the way of what God has called us to do. We are following a crucified Savior and so we are being crucified all the time. Paul says, why are we doing that if there's no resurrection awaiting us? Verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking I fought with beasts at Ephesus? This is Paul Talking, I don't think beast here is literal beast. I think he's talking about spiritual powers. Why would I go through that? If the dead are not raised, he says. And he quotes a a, a famous saying of the time let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, let's live it up. If the dead are not raised, go party. If the dead are not raised, what are you doing here? If the dead are not raised, your obligation is to maximize your pleasure now because you won't get any pleasure at the end of your life. That's the logic. And then he quotes a pagan from a pagan play that's been lost to us. I think he's making a point here. He says, do not be deceived, and he quotes from this play, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. These are slogans. Paul is saying the problem, church, is that you're listening to the wrong voices. You are allowing the wrong voices in your culture to impact the way you think. You are listening to to pagan poets and sayings that put all the emphasis on now. You are letting them shape your outlook. And church, that's a problem that's never quite gone away. You get on Instagram, I call it Insta-theology. You know those little colorful little flower things with like these little quotes that hang in the air? And you're like, who said that? And you know who said it? Like some dude in his mom's basement and just like posted it on there. And then we start sharing it. It's like millions of likes. Like, yeah, that sounds good. I'm getting that tattooed on my arm. And we never think, like, should I be liking this? Is this something that's consistent with the Bible? Here's two examples. Love yourself as much as you want to be loved. Doesn't that sound good? Amen. Love yourself as much as you want to be loved. And, and you know, there's a sense in which it's like if you let me define what I mean by that, I can say, tell you that statement in a way that I'll agree with it. The problem is when we, when we take that out of context and we allow ourselves to shape the context, what that statement ends up meaning often is it doesn't matter what the people around you are going through, put all the emphasis on yourself, because what ultimately matters is you feeling good right now. And we share stuff like that all the time. Here's another one. Do more of what makes you happy. Just do more of what makes you happy. Who cares about everybody else? Who cares about your husband or your wife? Who cares about your children? Who cares about your coworkers? Who cares about your neighbors? Who cares about people around you who are suffering? Do more of what makes you happy right now. That's what we say. That is the theology of our age in church. Listen to me. That is a theology with no resurrection. People who live by that mantra... Do not really believe that Jesus is coming back to raise his people. To so Paul, in the context of of, of, of making this practical argument of the importance for the resurrection is also rebuking the voices that these people are listening to. All of the voices that put all of the emphasis on our, in our lives on the now. Paul is saying, stop listening to this madness. Wake up from your drunken stupor, he says, and put your eyes on the risen and ascended Christ again. For that is when we will live the way that we're supposed to live. This whole argument. I mean, I just want you to think about it. Why, if, if Jesus isn't raised, why didn't you sleep in this morning? Well, I know one reason you didn't sleep in, because you got an extra hour last night. You know, we, were, we had a staff retreat this weekend, and they were like, should we tell the church that the time's changing? And you know what I said? I said, no. <laughs> because on this one, we'll tell you in the spring, but on this one, on this one, they're all going to be an hour early, and it's just going to be great. So we didn't remind you. <laughs> but, but really, I mean, like think about this with me. If, if The logic of this, if you, if your hope is only in this life, why on earth would you put your hard-earned money in those offering plates? Why on earth would you do that? You could buy a nicer car for yourself. You could buy a nicer house. Just think, if you didn't give any money... To the church if you didn't give any of your offering and belongings to Christ what you could do with that money man mm. you could keep up with your neighbors you could buy your kids the same nice things that everybody else's kids have why care about refugees or orphans or unreached tribes why care about them? If this life is all there is, you you cannot make a valid argument for why you should care about them. Why care about anyone but yourself? Why love? Why sacrifice? That's the point that Paul's making. The, the reality, church, is that it is the resurrection that makes everything else we do as Christians meaningful. It is the resurrection that puts the power in the call to follow Jesus. It is the reality that we are hoping in a future kingdom where Jesus is going to make all things new. And so we are willing to give of ourselves now because we know that Jesus will reward all of our efforts in the future. That's the reality. And then the fourth point, verses 18 and 19, we're going back up. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope for the dead. Then those who have fallen asleep, Paul says, in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know, there's a there's a huge emphasis in culture right now of trying to live longer. There's two guys, one of them is Brian Johnson with a Y and one of them is Brian Johnson with an I. Have you heard of these guys? Brian Johnson with a Y is a billionaire who's taking 111 pills a day to try to make his body continue to be the body of an 18-year-old. Brian Johnson with an I is the liver king. (laughs) Some of our guys around here like Brian Johnson with an I, so this is for you. Brian Johnson with an eye eats livers and things from animals, but he's really a fake because he really takes steroids and he got found out about it. But nonetheless, (laughs) the the whole point of of why people are fascinated with these people is because we want to be healthier. We want to be living longer. And and now there's a whole movement to make us machines, right? If we can somehow meld organic humanity with digital media, with computers, then, then we can live forever. We can conquer the world. And we think that that is good news. And let me ask you a very serious question. Do you really want to live forever in a world with Putin and Hamas and abortion and wickedness everywhere? Is that really what you're living for? I just want to keep on living and watch people suffer around me. That's what I want. You see, here's what you got to understand, church. When Jesus says that He's going to resurrect His people, He's not just saying that He's going to let all of His people live longer in the world as it is. He says, I am making all things new. A part of the resurrection of humanity is the resurrection of creation. Jesus is coming and He's judging the wickedness on the earth because He's doing away with it and He's starting over. Jesus is coming and He's doing away with cancer and He's doing away with disease and He's doing away with death itself. Jesus is coming so that we can live the way God originally intended us to live apart from sin in harmony in grateful, joyful submission to the One who made us. That's why the resurrection matters, church. But here's the second part, the last part. Why the resurrection matters theologically. In, in verses 20 through 28, there's no more ifs. All of the if thens have been replaced by Paul's belief that the resurrection is a historical fact. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is what Paul's doing here. He's saying, look, if you really want to understand and bear with me, like I know if you're not used to these length of sermons, you got to like bring it together right here. This is where Paul undergirds what he's been arguing with theological truth. This is where Paul says, if you really want to understand why the resurrection is important, then you've got to go all the way back to the beginning of history. And you have to understand that God is not just the God of the now, that God is the God of all of history, yesterday, today, and forever. Salvation history. When we look at verse 20, this word, firstfruits, carries a lot of weight. You know, if you're a farmer, if you've ever gardened, you know that when you get that first bit of crop, you you think, yeah, that's that's cool. That means there's more coming. But but it means more than just that. First fruits doesn't just mean timing. It doesn't just mean Jesus was first resurrected. That means we're gonna be resurrected later. Because think about it this way: Israel would bring a first fruits offering. And so that, that idea is really important here. When, when they would have grain or wine or cattle, they would bring a first fruits offering. Now listen, the idea of a first fruits offering, a portion of their produce, was that the portion, the offering, represented all of it. So th- think about that with me. You, you come and you bring a little bit of your money to church and you put it in the offering plate. And you say, God, I'm putting this in the offering plate, and what it represents is that all of my money belongs to you. You see, when when it says, when Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he's not just saying that Jesus comes first in time. He's saying that Jesus is the representative of the whole. He is the first episode in a two-part movie. Jesus is raised, and because Jesus has been raised, all of the people who are united to Jesus are also going to be raised. He's the firstfruits. And then he gives us this argument for verses 21 through 23, for as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So, so he makes this, this distinction between Adam and Jesus. He says in Adam all die, but in Jesus everyone is being, all who are united to him are being raised, are being made alive. This is Paul's view of the world. And if you want to think biblically about the world, you've got to think the way Paul does. Paul says human history has two representatives. The first representative is Adam. When Adam fell in the garden and sinned and rebelled against God, he represented all of the rest of us. We sinned in Adam. We fell in Adam. We died in Adam. Every person connected to Adam died when Adam sinned. And all of us were connected to Adam because he was the first human being. But Paul doesn't want us to stop there. You see, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus comes to undo everything that Adam got wrong. Jesus comes, and where God told Adam that he was supposed to image him, but Adam failed, Jesus comes and perfectly images God. Jesus reverses the curse of death through the cross because Jesus was completely righteous and never sinned. And so when he died on the cross, he made a perfect sacrifice for all the sins of all of Adam's people. And in verse 22, where he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Understand the all there are all of those who are united to him. In Adam, all who are united to him die, the whole human race. In Christ, all who are united to him are made alive, all who have faith in Jesus. He is bringing about a resurrection. And it's already started. And that's his point in verses 24 through 28. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He's quoting there Psalm 110.1. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. He's quoting there Psalm 8.6. You see, Paul sees this prophesied in the old testament is coming to pass before his very eyes but when it says all things are put in subjection it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him the only one who will not be put in subjection is jesus because he's going to reign forever he uses military language here He talks about how Jesus through his death and resurrection is going to conquer all his enemies and the greatest, the last enemy is death itself. When he says, uh, when he talks about authority and power in verse 24, he's talking about supernatural authorities and powers, but he's also talking about how those supernatural authorities are manifested in the earth, often through power structures and nations rebelling against the purposes of God, Jesus is going to reign over it all. And the last enemy is death. And once death has been defeated, all resistance to Christ's power will be finally ended forever. That's his point. So here's my question as we wrap up. Are we people of the resurrection or not? And you're like, what does that even mean? Let me tell you what I mean by that question. If you believe in this, then it is going to shape your outlook. It is going to shape your approach to everything in life. It's election week, church. Let me tell you something. Go and vote your conscience. Go and vote for the purpose of righteousness. But hear me. Whoever is elected nothing changes that we've talked about here this morning. Whatever happens in the Middle East, nothing changes that we've talked about this morning. World War III with nuclear bombs could start tomorrow and it does not change the reality that Jesus is going to reign. And we are going to reign in Him. This isn't wishful thinking or a nice idea. This can't be reduced to a nice, motivating spiritual message. Our whole entire fate hangs in the balance. Jesus in His physical flesh came back to life. And because of that, you can be sure that yours is going to as well. And if that isn't true, we're wasting our lives. But in fact... Christ has been raised. Let's pray together.